You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Today is um, from Revelation 13 and 14, and it's on page 1097 um, in the Pew Bibles. As I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, it had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its head were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and his great authority. With one of his heads, one of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling and those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to listen, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast, beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who is wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark of the beast. And it's, this calls for wisdom, Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a person. It is the number 666. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remain virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. He spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another, a second angel, followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. 
She has made all nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith to Jesus. I, then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labours, since their works follow them. Then I looked, and there was a, a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel, who also had a sharp sickle, came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel, who had authority over fire, came from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth, because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth. And he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. This is the word of the Lord. All right. I can't speak for anyone else, but I, um, I've really enjoyed uh, taking our time to get through the book of Revelation together and taking it verse at a time and asking God for understanding and indeed for revelation that his will for us would be revealed through this text. And um, this is the last week we'll be in the book until uh, October when we'll get to part three of our series and finish the last eight chapters together, running up to uh, the season of Advent. Um, the, the purpose of this series, and I guess probably all of our preaching here, is just to be able to, um, to observe the book in its context from a great height, to see it in its context, and then to get down onto the ground and verse by verse walk through it together and try and understand it, uh, understand what God is saying to us through it. And I remember the um, first time I flew into LA, uh, into LAX airport, um, I remember looking on the little screen um, in front of me on the, in the airplane, and it showed that the airplane was right above LA, but there, uh, you could see nothing below, because the smog that is just a constant fixture of life in, in Los Angeles was preventing any kind of view. Um, and, and then, you know, eventually as you're descending, you break through this wall of smog and suddenly this ginormous city is laid out in front of you. And um, That's kind of been my experience of looking at this book together because from a great height, you kind of read it in its um, entirety and for me at least, that the whole thing was pretty hazy. Like there's, there's, there's a lot there that's difficult for us to see and understand. There's a kind of smog that hangs over the book of Revelation, and my fear is that it prevents a lot of us from ever really reading it in the first place, um, never mind teaching through it. But I think my hope this morning is that uh, as we look at these two chapters, and, and clearly we don't have time to go into great detail, um, we won't be doing our usual thing of just working a verse at a time through it, but that we might be able to just break through that smog and get a view of it from a height 
10,000 foot kind of view um, of, of the two chapters and how they fit together and then God willing we'll have a little bit of time to get down on the ground and do some application for us in our lives today. So first of all let's just look at the, the chapters themselves like that these two chapters connect together and kind of interpret one another. So um, first of all in chapter 13 we're, we're introduced to two beasts. Uh, there's a beast from the sea and a beast from the land and uh, the, the first beast, the sea beast, uh, is representative of imperial power. Uh, the, the, the imperial powers that came to subjugate Israel always or generally came over the sea and so it's, the, the, the sea is representative of this great threat of imperial power and that's what this beast represents. It's, it's the power of empire. And then the beast from the land is representative of, of religious power. And what these two beasts do is, is sort of come together and do the bidding of uh, serve in the, um, uh, under the authority of the dragon that we met last week. That is Satan. And so these two great beasts are, are, are representative of these two great powers, imperial power and religious power, and the outcome really is that the church, those who are faithful to Jesus, those who follow the Lamb, those people are persecuted, they're oppressed, they're killed. That's the view from chapter 13, which is a view kind of the earthly perspective of what's going on. Then in chapter 14, you have the heavens perspective on what's going on. And where from the earth's perspective, it just looks like these powers are, ju are just like... Um, uh, irrepressible and that God's people are just like there is no hope for them under the the authority of these regimes from heaven heaven's perspective the triumph is seen as being given to the people who persevere those people who are suffering are actually triumphant those who stay faithful to the lamb are the ones who win in the end so you got in verse 13 um, it says this, uh, verse 13 of chapter 14, then I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They're blessed. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works followed them. Their work, their, I mean, their, their commitment, their slog to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of an environment that is utterly opposed to them results in their rest, in their final triumph. And that's a theme we've seen repeated over and over again right through this book, right? This book is written as a call, as an encouragement to the followers of the Lamb, followers of Jesus, to remain faithful to him come what may. It's a promise that God wins in the end. So let me just do a little bit more explanation of who these beasts are, what they represent. You've got two beasts here, which, you know, obviously the language is a little strange, certainly foreign to us, kind of reads a bit like a fantasy novel. Um, but John is, as he does all through this book, is drawing on, like heavily drawing on Old Testament imagery. So one of the reasons we might struggle to understand the book of Revelation is if we don't have a good solid foundation in the Old Testament scriptures. So here he's clearly drawing on uh, some of Daniel's imagery, particularly from the, bo the book of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel speaks of four beasts, and they are as well uh, representative of imperial powers opposed to the people of Israel. So in, in Daniel 7, you've got a lion, representative of Babylon, that great power. You've got a bear, representative of Persia. You've got a leopard that represents Greece. And then you've got this ten-horned, um, iron-jawed, terrible creature representative of Rome. And so what John is doing here is taking Daniel's imagery and saying, what's going on uh, in terms of the imperial forces that are serving the dragon and, and committed to persecuting the church, that, that beast from the sea is like a terrible fusion of all of those beasts from Daniel's vision.
It's like, a, it's like Transformers. I don't know if you remember Transformers. I'm an 80s kid, so it's like, it's like putting together everything, um, uh, everything that has opposed God's people in the past, putting it, plugging it all together and making like a super beast. And for John, in, in his context, that's the empire of Rome. In the first century, the, the, the opposition to the church was embodied in the empire of Rome, committed to persecuting, killing Christians, doing it for fun. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what are the echoes of John's experience living under oppressive Roman rule, what are the echoes that we experience today? And the truth is that we don't experience much of it. We're spared a lot of it. Many, many, many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing it with full force. We've gone over and over again through this series, the reality of the persecution of the church today, the reality of martyrdom, for people who want to remain faithful to Jesus. It seems so foreign to us. Some of you have come from countries where that is the lived reality for most of us. It seems foreign. It seems far away. But this is the reality of what's happening to our brothers and sisters around the world. Where can we see evidences of the imperial beast serving the dragon Satan bent on the destruction of God's people. It's worth remembering that this is a present-day reality and it echoes and it has always echoed through history since this was written in the first century. So you've got the beast from the sea, now you've got the beast from the land, and this is, again, representative of not imperial power but religious Power and the, the purpose of this beast is to kind of reinforce the, 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 the beast from the sea. He's kind of like his wingman, he's, he's using religious power to reinforce the imperial power. So it says here in chapter 13, verse 16 to 17. says of this beast, it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's the beast name, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, he says. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. Its number is six, six, six. So there's kind of debate about what 666 refers to. Obviously, it refers to something. John's very explicit about it being um, understanding that number, being the key to knowing who he's talking about when he refers to the beast. From the sea. Um, I, I think that this is, uh, I think John's referring to Caesar Nero, who had been um, oppressing the church in the first century. Um, there's, a, there's a whole kind of reason for this, which we won't really get into, but there's this, this, this um, practice in the first century of, um, it's called gematria. It's, it's taking Hebrew words and assigning them numerical values and you kind of form a bit of a, a code and the, the, the scholars tell us that one way of, of doing this sum is um, if you take the, the words Caesar Nero in Hebrew you can assign the values to them which equals 666. So it's likely that the first readers of this letter uh, in the seven churches of of Turkey understood what John was talking about when he gave that number. Um, certainly, he expects them to. That's why he says uh, this calls for wisdom, and um, and and expects that people should understand who he's talking about. Uh, it's not 
overly important for us to know who it is exactly that he's talking about, certainly not as important as it was for the people of the time, but I think I'm pretty convinced that he's talking about Nero. Now, as we've seen through the book of Revelation, that this book is written in a first century context about first century things for first century people, but the point is that we've seen over and over again is that, this, that, that those first century realities echo through history. And so it's worth us thinking about for ourselves, like where, who is Caesar Nero in our own day? Where, where are the, the, the kind of marks of the beast evident in our own day? And um, again, we're sheltered from much of this in our, um, in our own Australian context, praise God. But I think it's worth being conscious of, or at least thinking about the fact that this dynamic, the cooperation of imperial power and religious power, which has always been present and has always been working against the church, against um, orthodoxy, against um, persevering faith in the Lord Jesus, that's always been evident. And I, I think you, you could, without being alarmist, you can see some of, the, um, some of this starting to emerge a little bit even in our own context. So we did have that extraordinary situation recently with Andrew uh, Goldburn? Goldburn. Say it again. Andrew Thorburn. Thorburn. Yeah. That's right. should really write these things down. Uh, <laughs> Andrew Thorburn. Yeah, so, y- you know, he was... He was the chair of our, our friends at City on the Hill of their, their movement board and, um, and then was appointed to be CEO of Essendon Football Club and then very quickly was excused from his role because people didn't like his association with the church that taught biblical orthodoxy. And that ought to be unsettling to us. It ought to make us wonder whether some of what we're seeing, the dynamic we're seeing in the book of Revelation, might be emerging in our own time, uh, where you have, uh, in that case, the government getting involved, our own premier being very outspoken about how much disdain he had for the orthodox theology of that church. And this is why I think we should be mindful of that without being alarmist, um, and why we really need to, um, we, we really need to actively work to maintain our secular government. I almost never speak about politics from the front here. I don't think it's my place. Uh, but, but, but a secular government is good news for Christian people, for people of all faiths. Um, Having a secular government like we do means that the government is disinterested in religious beliefs and practices. And, and disinterested, is, it's, not, it's not uninterested, but disinterested, that, that is, that they, don't have a, they don't have a preference for one theology over another. They don't have a, a stake in what churches or, or religious people believe and practice. And this is why secular government is so good for us as believers and why we should be wary both of any kind of ideology creeping into our government, including, I might say, Christian ideology. Our hope is not in some kind of Christian nationalism uh, any more than any other kind of ideology at the helm of the government. We need to maintain a disinterested secular government. And so that's something that you, you can pray for um, that that whole situation, which I think was an, an overreach by our own Premier and his government, um, w- wouldn't take root. And the reason it could take root is because we're becoming more and more polarised as a society and we're becoming more and more okay with, comfortable with, um, cancelling people who don't agree with the things that we agree with. We need to be very, very uneasy about that in all of its forms. These beasts, both imperial and ideological, gather together, work together, so that Christians will be oppressed and killed, and also, you'll notice, 
they will be prevented from doing commerce, from buying and selling. These are things that we ought to be mindful of and praying against. So, you've got this sort of tag team of a couple of very, very powerful beasts, imperial and religious, getting together to oppose the kingdom of God. This has always happened, and I think it will likely continue to happen until Jesus comes and puts an end to it all. You saw this from the very beginning, right? Jesus' own crucifixion, teed up by both imperial Roman power and Jewish religious power. You see this today in certainly not all forms of Islam, but some of them, Wahhabist Islam, for example, very much, this is, this is their modus operandi. It's imperial and religious power with a very definite cause for their own kind of domination. You, you see it in Christian nationalism, which I'm no more a fan of than any other kind of religious nationalism. They have an objective and they go about it using the weapons of the dragon rather than going the way of Jesus, which is death and resurrection. Jesus triumphs by being slain and raised again, and that's the objective that we're giving here in the text. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way we go. We triumph not by killing, but by dying. So, I think probably uh, all of that is important, but the most important part of this passage that I want to focus on at this point is, is verse 16 and 17 in chapter 13. It says of the beast uh, of the land, it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. So this... I think, John, again, drawing on Old Testament imagery here, this is like an, an anti-Shamar. Uh, the, the Shamar, the, something that was core to the identity of the people of Israel, the Shamar that um, really was like the, 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 um, the central statement of their faith. You can read it in, in Deuteronomy, if you guys want to pull that up. In Deuteronomy, this is the great Shema. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. So this is, this is true orthodox faith. This is what we believe about who God is and who we are. It was central to the people of Israel. It, it, it set them apart. They were literally binding them on hand and forehead so that everyone would know, this is what I believe. And here you have a beast, a, a religious power opposed to Yahweh, opposed to the Lamb, who is doing his own version of the Shema. He is imposing an anti-Shema. It's a sign on hand and forehead which denies everything that the Shema says about who God is and who we are. So the pressure is on all people with threat of, you know, um, all kinds of uh, commercial... Um, negative outcomes to the point where, you know, this is really a, a question of life or death. If you can't buy and sell, you die, uh, together with the outright oppression and persecution of the church, the pressure is there to disavow oneself of the Shema and take on the anti-Shema. And those who remain faithful to the true Shema are those who will, yes, in the interim period, suffer, maybe even die. But in the end, God promises victory to those who remain faithful. Those who refuse to be marked by false doctrine, by idolatry, 
refuse to realign their lives. We, you, the, like the vision of the Shema here is an all of life, all about Jesus kind of vision, right? Sit down, walk along the road. Like it's, it's lie down, it's, it's everything. It's, it's day to day, it's the air we breathe. There's no nominalism here. This is all in. And so the anti-Shema is asking for all in, in opposition to the one true God. The antidote to this is coming to terms with the fact that God does indeed call us to an all of life, all about Jesus kind of lifestyle and that it will inevitably cost us. It might not cost us like our brothers and sisters having their heads cut off, separated from their families or unable to get work, but it might cost you the job as CEO of Essendon or it might cost you a promotion if you don't want to take on the symbols and doctrines of the world around us, it might cost you, it probably will. I love the fact that Jesus was really honest about this with us. Jesus is not some kind of social media influencer just trying to grab as many followers as he can. He said outright, Don't follow me unless you're willing to count the cost, unless you're willing to daily take up your cross and follow me. We need to be really clear about that. What we have here is a realistic picture about what life is going to be like for Christians. The persecution will take on different forms depending on where and when we live, but the reality is always there. The powers opposed to God and his people are always there. You can deny the reality of Satan and demons as much as you like, and it won't change anything about the reality. This letter written in the first century, this letter written to us today, is a call for endurance. People were making fun of me the other day about how my only illustrations are hiking illustrations, so let me give you one, another one, right? <laughs> Yesterday, I went on a hike with Josh, our friend Josh Hennessy, and he's just sort of getting into it now, and... Um, the first one we did a couple of weeks ago was a bit too easy, so I took him to Mount Macedon and we just, we just walked straight up the side of the mountain. It was muddy, it was cold, and it was hard. And, the, and once you get above a certain uh, elevation, every step is like an invitation to quit. because. All you have to do is turn around and walk back down to the car and you can be at the pub in 15 minutes, right, with your feet up in front of the fire. Every step is painful. There's a cost, right? And I'm pleased to say that we persevered and endured the next four hours. And the reward was great. The reward was going to bed that night exhausted, having conquered a mountain. Now, this is a perfect illustration of the Christian life. Because if you are indeed following Jesus, it will be painful. And if you are indeed following Jesus, you will have ample opportunities and invitations to just turn around. Like, all you have to do is turn around. Walk back down the hill. Why are you walking up when you can walk down? Why are you out in the freezing cold when you could have your feet up in front of the fire? Why why do this? These are the, the questions that you'll be asking yourself, and these are the questions that our enemies will be putting into your mind frequently. In the midst of a particular temptation, why would you resist when resisting is so much harder and less enjoyable than giving in. This is a call for endurance. The Christian life is all about endurance, perseverance. Those who inherit eternal life are those who persevere in the faith. This is a day-to-day 
decision. So it says in verse 22 of chapter 14, this calls for endurance. This calls for endurance from the saints. That's everyone who follows Jesus is a saint. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Do you hear the call this morning? It's the call of 10,000 times 10,000 angels willing you on to persevere in faith for this heartbeat of a life. This mist, this vapor of a life so that you might inherit eternal rest, eternal feet up in front of the fire. This itself is an echo from what we saw last week in in chapter 12, revealing who it is that the dragon is going to pursue. The dragon was furious with the woman, Israel, and went to wage war against the rest of her offspring, the, the church, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. That's what Christian discipleship is all about. It's not a vague attachment to Sunday morning gatherings. It's holding firmly to the testimony about Jesus, even as they're tearing you in half or dressing you in animal skins and feeding you to lions or just threatening you that you won't get that promotion if you keep talking to your friends about who Jesus is or whatever. It's a call for endurance. Now, I'm out of time. And yeah, I'm out of time. All right, yeah, sorry, we have, we have to do this. Um, we have to do this because the most important vision of all is put before us at the end. So we, we, we need to get there. Let's just jump ahead to, um, to chapter 14. Uh, so just a, as a sort of summary, in chapter 14, you've got 144,000 faithful ones um, with God uh, having received their reward, we saw a few weeks ago, 144,000 is just symbolic of a, a number that no one can number, right? That's incalculable, uh, a multitude from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And, and so this proves it is possible to endure, to persevere. A countless number before us have done it. Isn't that encouraging? They've done it. They've persevered. They've stayed faithful. And then you have this image of Jesus harvesting the earth. This is a a day of the Lord image. This is a judgment day image. You have Jesus taking a a, what's it called? Sickle. To To the earth and harvesting good wheat. Harvesting it and taking it to the kingdom of heaven. And this is just, I mean, this is just the, the, the imagery he used in his earthly ministry, Matthew 13. This is what he was referring to. Uh, he, he presented them a parable and, and he said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? And he goes on. An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest at harvest time, judgment day. I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles and burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. That's what's going on here. Jumping ahead to the end of all things. 
jumping from the first century persecution of the church right through church history up until tomorrow when Jesus comes or in 30,000 years when Jesus comes. Jumping ahead to that great and terrible and beautiful day where Jesus does justice on the earth. He harvests. And really the obvious question that's put before us in this passage is like a binary choice, starkly binary. Will you persevere, remain faithful to the Lamb and inherit all of the blessings that Jesus himself inherited as a a co-heir of his, as a son and daughter of God? Or will you give up? Will you turn back, walk back down the mountain, find comfort, find ease, and face judgment and wrath? It's a binary choice. There's no other way of interpreting this passage or any of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven. You can remain faithful as a follower of Jesus, and I mean that. I mean following Jesus, living like he lived, believing what he believed about what life is all about. If you're a Christian, this this whole book makes very clear that life can be brutal, but eternity will be beautiful. And the implication of this chapter that we've looked at, these two chapters, is that if you're not a Christian or if you turn away from following Jesus under pressure of all kinds, then life will be easier and eternity will be empty. Empty of joy and love and peace and glory. You have these words given to faithful and, and, and maybe at times faltering, stumbling Christians. This word of encouragement, even unto death. Chapter 14, verse 13, read it again. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed, blessed, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They will rest from their labors. Their works will follow them. Their perseverance will follow them. And you have a stark, terrible word of warning to those who fall away, to those who don't believe, to those who choose a path of least resistance. Chapter 14, verse 9 to 10. Unalloyed, third angel, loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, and this is not, you don't have in mind gathering around a statue or a figurine or a creature. This is simply the reverse of, of worshipping the lamb. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. I want us to see that this morning. I want us to see the stark reality of that. And I want it to be a clear warning to anyone who's faltering in their faith, tempted to turn back. I want it to be a really stark warning to you who aren't yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, haven't yet submitted to him, thrown yourself on his mercy, I want, I want you to hear this because, I, I mean, I tell you guys all the time, I love you. I really love you. I don't want anyone that I know and love to face that day of judgment without being washed by the blood of the Lamb. I don't want anyone who is currently following Jesus, coming together here and worshipping him to turn back 
to turn away, to give up. Please persevere. This whole church, right, that the, the, the purpose of the cube, that like everything that we do here, God willing, is, is marshaled for the purpose of enabling you to persevere. That's what the mission is. Making all of life all about Jesus is about persevering day to day, minute to minute. We want to we make as many resources available to encourage you to persevere. God himself, much more importantly, has made abundant resources available to nourish you, to reassure you, to encourage you to keep following the Lord Jesus. He's given his own spirit to witness to this reality. So, for God's sake and for the sake of souls who will one day be judged, please continue the ministry that you have, that all of us have in this church, of edification, of encouragement, of sometimes warning, other times comforting, but always pointing each other, pointing me, please, pointing me to the Lord Jesus fidelity to him. I'm done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your honesty with us and the the clarity that you grant us as we open your word. I pray that the images that we've seen here this morning in this book of revealing, that they would stick with us that they would be emblazoned on our hearts. Lord God, we love you and we love the people of this church. Please do everything to keep us close to our Lord Jesus. Please do everything to keep us faithful to the lamb that was slain. Lord God, may no one in this fold be lost. Please gather us all in to your eternal kingdom. Please, Lord Jesus, as our great shepherd, please so care for and nurture and nourish the sheep of this church that we would always be kept safe in this life and the life to come. We also pray for those who aren't yet of this fold and pray that you would bring them in. Where you are, there is peace. Where you are, there is promise. Please gather, gather more and more precious souls into your fold, we pray. Do it for your glory. Do it for, your, for, for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a couple of minutes now just to, um, to, th- to think about that, the images that have been presented to us through God's word this morning. I'd encourage you just to sit and to reflect. I would encourage you to pray for yourself and for those that you love Um, Please also pray for this church, that we would be faithful. Um, So Leslie's going to come in and sing for us, but please do take this time to reflect.
Jesus.